Well, welcome everyone this morning, those that are here in our celebration service, those that are worshiping across the way in our summit service, and those that are worshiping from home. Uh, we've had a great morning, and we're looking forward uh, to a great morning. If you have your Bibles, open, if you will, to Genesis 1-1. That has to be the easiest verse to find in the Bible, the very first verse, Genesis 1-1. We began a few weeks ago a series of messages that, that we have titled, Rebuttal, True Answers to Hard Questions. And we've tried to come up with the six most difficult questions we could think of. And then open our Bibles every week and find the Bible answer. Find what God has to say uh, to these questions that, uh, that people are asking. We started the first week with the question, does God really exist? Uh, last week, we asked the question, why is there so much suffering? If God is so good and God is so powerful, then why do people suffer? Uh, today, I want to answer the question, did God really create the world? Uh, we're going to do this in two parts. I, I thought I could really answer this question from God's Word in just one week. We're going to stretch it out over two. Uh, so next week, we'll talk about, did God create life? But today, did God create the world? So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, an easy verse, 10 words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now that's quite a statement. Think about it. In the beginning, before there was anything else, God, somehow, there was God. And he created everything, the heavens and the earth. You know, that's a verse that makes the skeptics roll their eyes. And it's a verse that makes many Christians squirm. God created the heavens and the earth. So I want us to look at that this morning and really ask three questions of that verse, three important questions. So this will be a simple message to follow. The first question we will ask and answer, is this an important truth? Is this something we can just discard? As Christians, can we just focus on the New Testament? Can we just focus on some of the easier things about love and grace and mercy? Is this an important verse? And then the second question I want to answer today is, is, but pastor, what about science? What about science? Science has given us so much and has taken us so far. How can you believe what you believe in the face of what some scientists uh, allege? What about science? And then finally, we will come back to this verse and ask the simple question, what does this verse really teach us? So let's begin with the first question. How important is it that we believe, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? Listen, church, this is a very important thing for us to believe. We cannot jettison this claim. We cannot call this some tack on to the Christian faith. This is not optional. This is not some, uh, so, some, some extra word that some people may choose to believe. This is the very core, the very foundation of everything we read in the Bible. I don't want to discourage you today, but the truth is if you can't believe Genesis 1-1, then your whole faith will come unraveled in the end. I've seen it a hundred times. If you try to say, I will reject the message of creation, but I will embrace the message of the cross, it's only a matter of time before you will reject it all. This is a foundational truth. God created the heavens and the earth. Now, let me, let me show you two reasons why this is so important. Two reasons why this is foundational. There are many reasons, but I want to give you two. 
Number one, the infallibility of God's word. We believe as Christians that God word, God's word is true, that it's infallible, that it's reliable. God's word tells the truth. And as such, listen, we can't divide God's word into the parts that we rely upon and the parts that we believe and then the parts that we, we will cast aside. If we begin to do that, we destroy the fabric of the entire book. We believe God's word is all the way true. Listen, if Genesis 3, the story of Adam and Eve, is not true, then how can we believe John chapter 3? For God so loved the world. If, if the Bible doesn't tell the truth when it talks about creation, how can we believe that it's telling us the truth when it talks about salvation? This is absolutely key because the infallibility of Scripture depends upon it. You know, so many times, even I think well-meaning Christians want to divide the Bible up and say, you know, there are parts that we can believe and parts that we can't. But, but let, me, let me show you how this one truth that God created the heavens and the earth, this is not merely a Genesis 1-1 truth. And I would, I'll just take you through maybe a half dozen or more verses. Just listen to these. John chapter 1, the New Testament. John chapter 1. Uh, verses one through three, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he was God in the beginning and all things were created through him and apart from him, no thing was created that was created. And so it says it in Genesis 1-1, but it also says it in John 1-1. We can turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse three, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Psalm 33, 9, he spoke it and it came into being. Isaiah 42, 5, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people who are in it. 2 Peter 3, 5, by the word of God, the heavens came into being a long time ago. Revelation 4, 11, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things. Colossians 1, 16, everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. Exodus 20, 11, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything that is in them in six days. Nehemiah 9, 6, you Lord are the only God. You created the heavens, the highest heavens with all their stars, the earth and all all that is on it and the seas and all that is in it. And I could go on and on and on. You see, if you want to reject God created the heavens and the earth, you're not just marking out Genesis 1. You're marking out verses throughout the Bible. You are dismissing the integrity of the entire Bible. I get frustrated when I hear uh, pseudo-intellectual Christians claim that they are not so primitive as to believe Genesis 1-1. But the intelligent thing to do, if you wanna reject Genesis 1-1, you must reject the entire Bible. Because this is not an isolated truth, this is the testimony of scripture. You know, another, another way that not believing this, this verse, this truth, messes with the infallibility of scripture is that if we selectively embrace I'll choose to believe this one and not this one and this verse and not that verse. Then as I've already really said, we undermine the whole authority of God's word. Now there are some theories uh, that some Christians hold that seek to explain away in my, from my perspective, really seek, seeks to explain away what we read in Genesis chapter one uh, by accommodating 
uh, some scientific theories and, and really giving people a softer uh, understanding of creation. And, and one I think this does not do justice to the plain, uh, plain expression of Scripture. And let me tell you what some of those theories are. Some people have suggested a, a gap theory. Have you ever heard of that? They suggest that perhaps there are millions and millions of years between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, that God created the world, and then a bunch of natural processes took place, and then millions of years later, when it was all ready, then he went to Genesis chapter 2, or Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and, and the rest of it goes. That's, that's the gap theory. There's another theory called the day-age theory. So some people would suggest that the six days of creation are not six solar days, 24-hour days, but there are six periods in history. There are six eras that, that, that may have lasted millions or billions of years. And, and so we go through this progression, but, but, it, but it's not six days. It's, it's just a, a description of what happened during the six periods of creation. That's the day-age theory. And then there's this literary literary framework theory that just calls the whole thing uh, some literary device. It's like poetry. It, uh, it says one thing but really means something else. It's really an allegory and it speaks more to some spiritual truths than it does actual truths. But listen, none of those theories are supported by just the plain reading of Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, can a Christian hold one of those theories, and there are some more that people have come up with through the years, can a Christian believe one of those? Well, it all comes down to what you believe is the ultimate authority. I suppose if, if you read this text and you have uh, textual reasons or grammatical reasons uh, to believe that the text says a day is a million years or something, if you really believed that, then, then perhaps you could hold to one, one of those theories. But I think oftentimes when Christians hold to one of those theories, it, it is just a, a cowardly way of putting something ahead of the authority of Scripture. We get, in a, we get in a tough place because it seems that science says this and it, and it seems that the Bible says this. And when we have difficulty putting those together, sometimes we just get lazy and we try to come up with ways that just aren't faithful to, to, to the word. See, God's authority has to be first. Are we going to judge what, what science says by the word of God or are we going to alter the word of God based on what scientific theories may come down the line. It's a matter of authority. Now there's a second reason why Genesis 1-1 is important, not just because of the infallibility of God's word, but also because of the first Adam and the second Adam. Now, this is one of those things I wish I had two hours to, to talk about, and I promise you I won't do that, but uh, th th this is a wonderful truth. And I've preached on this before, uh, but, but it's something that takes a little work to wrap your heads around. So Genesis 1 through 3, as you know, tells the story of the creation of the world, uh, the creation of man, and the fall of man, the sin of Adam and Eve. Now when Adam and Eve sinned, something significant happened. God cursed the world because of sin. God brought death into the world because of sin. 
And that sin now has been passed on from Adam to his children, to their children, to their children, all the way to us. The Bible teaches that I am a sinner not because I have sinned, I sin because I'm a sinner. You understand the difference? I was born a sinner. I inherited it from my dad, and he inherited it from his dad. All the way back to Adam, Adam sinned, and so that sin, we have all been guilty of that sin all the way down through the generations. Adam is, in a sense, the head of all of us, and his sin affects us all. And so you come to Romans chapter, well, chapter 5, but really the whole first half of, of the book of Romans, and, and God is explaining how this, how this sin and this death that came from one person now can be life that comes from one person. You see, the, the, the Bible teaches us that, that if there wasn't an Adam who brought sin into the world, then there cannot be a Jesus who brings life into the world. Now, I just want to read a few verses. These really you know, are begging for an entire sermon that we don't have time for now, but, but you'll, you'll catch the truth. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sin. So one man sinned, Adam, was passed down. His son, his children were born with sinful natures. Their children born with sinful natures. You were born with sinful, with sinful natures. So then that brings us to verse 15. Skipping down a couple of verses, it says, but the gift is not like the trespass. The gift, that's referring to what Jesus did. The trespass, that's what Adam did. The gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass, the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus, overflow to so many. So death came from Adam, but life comes from Jesus. See, Adam sinned and now we're all guilty. Jesus was obedient and he was obedient even on the cross. And so just as we inherit death from Adam, so we can inherit life from Jesus. I read one more verse, verse 17. If by one man's trespass, now this is good news. You, this should excite you. You, you shouldn't just sit there like move on, pastor. It doesn't get any better than this. Listen. If by one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? We are dead because of Adam's sin, but we can have life because of Jesus' obedience. Now, what does that have to do with Genesis 1-1? Well, if you do away with God created the heavens and the earth, and you do away with Adam and Eve and the first sin in the garden, if you do away with that, then you also have to do away with what Jesus did. If there was no Adam, there needs to be no Jesus. If Adam didn't bring death, then Jesus doesn't bring life. Genesis 1-1 is a critical verse to our faith. So that's the answer to the first question. Do we need to believe this? Absolutely. But the second question, Pastor what about science? Now, church, I'm a fan of science. I, uh, I like to read science. I believe in science. I benefit from science. We all do. I'm a fan. Please don't leave here and say, that pastor doesn't even believe in science. Uh, I do. But there is a difference 
between science facts and science theories. And oftentimes that difference gets muddled and it really disappears in the minds of of people who hear science theories, scientific theories. Someone once said that scientific theories have a half-life of about five years. That, that, that many of the things that, that are scientific theories, many of the things that we, we believe, even sometimes many, many people believe are true, then just a few years later, we've abandoned those scientific theories. Scientific views change. Can I give you a list? Smoking used to be good for you. Did you know that? i tell you one of the most fascinating Google searches you can do is uh, Google smoke, not right now, please, but <laughs> Google smoking posters 1940. And you'll find these posters on Google that, that, that show, that, that'll say like 60,000 60, doctors recommend Lucky Strikes. And it's, uh, smoking used to, be, used to be healthy. Coffee is good for you some years and not good for you other years. Have you noticed that? Pluto used to be a planet, and a lot of you still thought it was. The earth used to be flat, and some of you, well. (laughs) Stars used to rotate around the earth. I read the most fascinating book about, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago, called Lincoln's Melancholy. Did you know that Abraham Lincoln Lincoln suffered from severe depression? And so he sought treatment in his day for severe depression, and he went to see the preeminent doctor of his day, Benjamin Rush. And Benjamin Rush had a treatment, a standard treatment for depression. You want to know what it is? You might try this. His treatment was, first, bleed 12 pints of blood in two weeks. So just bleed out. That's almost enough to kill you right there. Step two, induce vomiting with mercury, arsenic, and strychnine. Those are poisons. It gets worse. Step three, administer large dosages of ginger, black pepper, tar pills with peppermint tea until the patient's stool turns green. Now, at the end of that, depression is the least of your worries. (laughs) Scientific views change, right? I read read an article this week that pointed to another article in the Annals of Internal Medicine, where it's a medical journal for scientists and for physicians. And so these uh, scientists uh, did a study, and they determined that everything scientists and doctors know about cirrhosis and hepatitis, uh, that half of that is proven wrong every 45 years. Uh, Not just uh, moved away from, but actually proven wrong. Half of everything doctors know about cirrhosis and hepatitis every 45 years turns out to be wrong. Now, science changes. There's a difference between facts and theories. Facts don't change. Theories might be true and might not be true. So I want to give you a few examples. Now my goal here is not to answer every, uh, every point that some skeptic might raise. In fact, we're going to get back to the verse in a moment, and I'm going to show you why uh, really even the things I'll say in this point aren't, aren't critically important. But what I want to do here is just to give you a sample. I want to give you an example 
of the fact that when people ask questions that we don't know the answers to, it doesn't mean there's not an answer. It just means we need to dig a little deeper. And I've uh, enjoyed through the years reading much about this. So a couple of examples, two or three examples. Carbon-14 dating. Have you heard of that? And so that's a dating system that scientists use to determine the age of some, uh, some material, some artifact that they found. And it's based, I'm not a scientist, and so I'm not qualified to teach on this, but uh, carbon-14 is a radioactive substance that's inside of everything. And it decays at a certain rate. 5,700 years, half of it decays. Another 5,700 years, another half of it decays. And so they can measure how much carbon-14 remains in an object, in an artifact, and they can tell you how old that artifact is. All sounds really good. By that carbon-14 dating, they have determined that the world is millions and millions, maybe even billions of years old. The problem is the numbers they come up with are all over the map. And the procedures and the interpretive models have to be adjusted almost every year to account for the anomalies. And I'll give you an example. Recently, they have uncovered diamonds in Africa, different parts of Africa, diamonds that uh, the, the scientists have said because of the strata of rock that those diamonds were found in that they had to be two billion years old. Billion, two billion, that's a lot of years. But now they have measured the carbon-14 in those diamonds. You know how much carbon-14 there should be in those diamonds after two billion years? None, practically none. And they're finding high levels of carbon-14 in, in some of those diamonds, which tells us, well, which tells us that the carbon-14 dating, while it may be helpful, and there certainly is some truth to things like the decay rate of uh, radioactive materials, it's not a reliable way to know for certain how old anything is. I'll give you another example quickly. Uh, dinosaur soft tissue. Uh, so there have been many recent findings of quote-unquote wondrously preserved biological materials in these ancient rock layers. So they're able to determine how old these are because they're down so many layers and they know when the layers, or they think they know when the layers were laid down. But there's a problem. In one of these deep layers that they said that they claim was laid down 65 million years ago, they have recently found they fossilized Okay, dinosaur. I can't pronounce the next name. <laughs> Tyrannosaurus rex femur. There you go. They found this femur with flexible connective tissue, branching blood vessels, and even intact cells. And so while those that found it, because of the strata of rock it was in, said it was 65 million years old, they take it into the lab and they analyze it, and those people say it cannot be any older than 55,000 years. Now, I don't know how old it is. I just know it's time to go back to the drawing board. We don't know how old uh, many of the things are that we find. And then one last, one last example, the Grand Canyon. Have you been to the Grand Canyon? It is amazing. And you can even see those rock layers that, uh, that many scientists point to uh, that tell them that uh, it took millions and millions of years, 30, 35 million, yes, 35 million years for the Colorado River to, to carve that deep trench in what we call the Grand Canyon. Uh, 
Except there is another Grand Canyon. Have you heard of this one? It is in Lumpkin, Georgia. In Lumpkin, Georgia, there is a canyon called the Providence Canyon, 1,100 acres. In the early 1800s, it was just flat farmland. By the mid-1800s, farmers had completely removed all trees and vegetation, and that made it susceptible for erosion. In 1846, there was a big rain, a lot of rain. Heavy rainfall began to carve little gullies in the dirt. And then each year, when there were further rainstorms, those gullies would, would deepen. By the 1940s, they were having to move entire cities out of the way because this canyon had gotten so large. Uh, today, it has 16 different fingers, some of them more than a mile long, and it is as deep as a 15-story building is high. They call it Georgia's Little Grand Canyon. Now, what does that mean? In just 100 years, 150 years, just plain old rain, in an area of the country where it would be much more difficult to dig through the roots and the, and the structures and, and all the growth that would come back each year than, than you would find out west, in just 150 years, you've got a, a little Grand Canyon. So if you add in the great flood in Genesis chapter 6, then there's real reason to, to believe that perhaps the Grand Canyon is not so old and did not take so long to form. Now, as I said, I'm not a scientist, and, and you could come up with 10 more evidences, and I wouldn't have the answers for them. But I know this. Often, the reason we don't know is not because there's not an explanation, but because we just haven't looked. And there are people, there are scientists who dedicate their whole lives to finding evidence of creation, and it is overwhelming. However, I want us to get back to this verse and I think when, when we really analyze the verse, you may see that even those things don't, don't really matter. If the argument about the Grand Canyon and carbon-14, if that's not convincing, then that's fine. Let's keep moving on. I hope you'll be convinced in a moment. Genesis 1-1, what does it really mean? Well, as I said, 10 words. Let's look at them just a few words at a time. It begins by saying, in the beginning. In the beginning. I heard about a debate between a skeptic, science, uh, a scientist, a skeptic of, uh, of creation, and he was debating a, a Christian, and they were going back and forth, and the, and the scientist gave this uh, compelling argument uh, with evidence of, of, of how the world uh, was not created in just a, a week. It was not a young earth, but it was a very old earth. And so then the, then the Christian responded, well, in the beginning, God. And the scientist stopped him right there and said, well, listen, if you want to bring God into it, that changes everything. Well, let's just bring God into it. That's what the verse says. In the beginning, God. People say sometimes they have trouble believing the miracles of the Bible. They have trouble with the story of Jonah and the well. They have trouble with Jesus bringing somebody back to, to life or, or healing someone of some disease. But listen, if in the beginning, God, then anything is possible. Don't you understand? In the beginning, God. The scientific approach, the scientific approach attempts to evaluate something based on the elements in the system. Now, hang with me a minute. If I were to have a beaker, a glass, a large glass container 
of pure distilled water. And I had it right up here on the platform. And you could see it. Had a half gallon of water in it. It's clear. There's nothing in it. And I were to bring in some chemist and ask him to analyze that water and tell us what are the chances that that water will turn blood red. Okay, so the chemist comes in and he performs or she performs the necessary experiments and says, uh, Pastor, it's just water. It's just plain water. I even analyzed the container that it's in. There's no chance that that water will turn red. And so then I reach in my pocket and I pull out a bottle of red food coloring and I just squirt it in there. And I say, look, you're wrong, it's red. Now what would the scientist say? He'd say, that's not fair. I didn't know you had a bottle of red food coloring. All I was looking at was the water. Exactly. See, science is a good thing and it's helpful, but science just looks at the water. Science does not take into account that there might be some factor that it is not looking at. Science does not take into account the fact that I might have red food coloring in my pocket and that there might be a sovereign God who can intervene at, at any time. Physics is the study of what happens when there is no outside interference. The Bible is the study of what happens when there is outside interference. I like to read, uh, I like to read these uh, these different theories and philosophical approaches. And, and so many scientists, philosophers, David Hume and others, they have, they have made, they have given us a logical statement that proves that, that God cannot intervene. There are no miracles. There is nothing that God has done. And so I, I just want to give it to you. This is uh, it's simplified a little bit, but this is, this is their statement. Number one, they say miracles are events that violate the basic laws of physics. We would agree with that, I think. Miracles are events that violate the basic laws of physics. Their second point, nothing can violate the basic laws of physics. Their third point, therefore miracles are impossible. But do you see a problem with that? What they're saying is that miracles are impossible because they're impossible. Science looks at the system, the Bible looks at the potential that there's something outside the system. Listen to this logic. Here's how I would approach it. Miracles could only happen if there were a sovereign God. Step number two, there is a sovereign God. So step number three, miracles are possible. It all comes down to where you start. Now listen, I'm not against science or scientists. We have scientists in our church. I'm not against science or scientists. I'm not questioning the intelligence of those men and women. I'm telling you, it, it comes from where you start. The first law of physics says that energy and matter cannot be either created or destroyed. Now, there can be some conversion one to the other, but energy and matter as a totality, the first law of physics, this is just, this is physics 101, day one. You cannot create more of it and you cannot destroy it. It is constant. Okay, listen, church, if you start there, nothing can be created and nothing can be destroyed. Matter, energy, nothing. If you start there, you're going to end with there is no God. That's, that's going to happen every time. But if you start with this, 
in the beginning, God, you end up in an entirely different place. Even if you're a scientist, even if you're a physicist, even if you're a chemist, even if you're the smartest man in the world, the smartest woman in the world, it all counts with where you start. So this verse, 10 words, in the beginning, God, the next word, created, created. What does it mean that God created it? It means that he created it out of nothing. Nothing. He started with, with nothing. I read an article, actually it was just a newspaper article, uh, a few years ago. The headline was, Scientists Create Life. Now that caught my attention. I was impressed even before I read the, read the words. I was less impressed when I read it, but scientists create life. What could that be about? And so I read the article and it talked about a group of scientists somewhere that had taken some stuff, and I'm not smart enough to even know what the stuff was, but they took some stuff and they mixed it together in a blender or something. It might have been a little more complicated than that. And then they came out with amino acids. Amino acids, the building blocks of protein, the building blocks of life. So they made these amino acids. Now I'm not trying to knock them. I'm sure that that was groundbreaking science uh, beyond anything I could ever, ever even understand. But listen, church, they didn't create anything. They started with stuff. I mean, if a scientist can start with nothing and creates, create life or anything, then I'll be impressed. They didn't create, they made, there's a difference. When it says that God created something, that means he started with nothing and we ended up with everything. God is the creator. Now, I know that that makes people uncomfortable, makes some of you uncomfortable. How in the world could God create out of nothing all this stuff? How could God do that? Well, I, I tell you, that is a good question and, and, it, and it's a question that is very difficult to answer. But we know that it has been created, right? I mean, there is stuff. You're sitting on something. You're, you are something. There's some stuff. So if you question whether or not God created it, then what is your theory? How did we get all of this stuff? So I spent some time and looked up the creation theories of other civilizations through history. So this is ours. God created the heavens of the earth, but maybe there's a better one out there. So I, I'm going to give you a list of them. There's the Egyptian creation story. Do you know that one? The earth came because there was a primeval ocean upon which appeared an egg. From the egg was born the sun god, and the sun god had four children, Geb, Shu, Tefnut, and Nut. I think if you were a god, you could come up with better names than that. From the rivalries of those god-born children of the sun, creation took place. And then they have all the details. So if you don't want to believe in the beginning God, you could believe the, the Egyptian creation story. If that one's not good, let me give you the Babylonian. The world came from a plot and counterplot amongst the gods in a series of banquets, rivalries, and wars like a divine soap opera. Then there's the Greek creation story, a mythical giant named Atlas standing at the borders of the earth held up the heavens and the earth with, with his great strength. Then there's the Hindu creation story. This is, I like this one. The world rested on the back of three elephants, which in turn stood on the back of a giant tortoise, which swam about in a cosmic sea. So I don't know if you found a better option. The next I want to mention is scientific naturalism. See if this sounds better. This is the theory of many scientists today. There was no one, nowhere, with nothing, and it exploded for no reason. 
And here we are, okay? Uh, they start with nothing, nobody, nowhere, and no reason. They end up with everything. I don't know about you, but I think the tortoise story is more likely. The truth is you have to have, it had to come from somewhere. And our Bible says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and that just makes more sense to me than all the rest combined. Now the last, last part, um, I'll hurry. Our verse says, in the beginning, God created the mature heavens and the mature earth. Now, I added a word that's, that's not in the Bible there, but I didn't make it up. Uh, the Bible does teach in the next few verses in the, in, the fall, in, the, in the chapter that follows, God does say that his creation was a mature creation. And I want you to understand what that means. If you look at Genesis 1.9, and you can see this in almost every verse of Genesis 1, but I'll just, I'll draw your attention to a few. Verse 9 says, Then God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. So think about that. Water covered the whole earth. God then removed the water from some parts of the earth and created dry land, and instantly it was dry. Now how long does it take land that's been covered in water to dry out? If you've got a cow pond on your field and, and, and you uh, on your farm and, and you tear down the dam and you drain that, how long before that's dry land? It's not an instant, right? But God did this in such a way that things that to us would have taken a great deal of time through his mighty power happened instantly. Now keep that in mind. Let's look at verse 21. So, so, so God created large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. And he also created every winged creature according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So he created all oh, the, the whale and the fish and, and the birds. Verse 22, God blessed them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came and then morning the fifth day. So seems like a solar day, right? A 24-hour day. There's evening and morning one day. So what were these animals like that God created in one day? Were they all little baby animals? No, because he talks about these large sea creatures. And he, and he talks about the animals immediately begin to multiply. No, when these animals were created, they were created as mature animals, as great big whales. Now, one more one more passage, and I'll, I'll pull these details together. Verse 26, 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, and the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and, and female. Now, what did Adam look like when God created him? We don't know exactly, but we do know some things. Uh, when Adam was created, was he a newborn baby? You know, rolling around, unable to feed himself? No, when Adam was created, he was a full-grown man. Now, let's imagine that we somehow get in our time machine and we go back to the creation of Adam, me and you, and we bring your family doctor with us. We've got several doctors in the room. So maybe we'll bring one of those doctors. And when we get there, uh, we, we will show up five minutes after Adam has been created. 
okay? So Adam's created, five minutes later, poof, me, you, and the doctor. And so me and you ask the doctor to examine Adam, and the doctor does. Uh, she sees how tall he is. She weighs him. Uh, maybe uh, the doctor looks at Adam's teeth, his full permanent teeth, molars. Maybe the doctor does some, uh, takes a blood sample and checks the liver function. Maybe the doctor looks at the skin to see if it's uh, the supple skin of a baby or if it's the skin of a man that's tougher. And so when the doctor finishes his or finishes her uh, examination, we pose one question. Based on modern scientific standards, how old do you think Adam is? Now, what would the doctor say? 20 years old, 30 years old? Oh, we don't know exactly because we don't know exactly what Adam looked like, but we know this. The doctor wouldn't say five minutes, five minutes. Why? Because Adam was created with signs of maturity. Adam was created with the appearance of age. Had you used all the scientific modeling that we have, and you would have examined Adam five minutes after he was created, he would have appeared to be 20, 30 years old. Now, what does that tell us about what we should expect to see in the world? Now, this is why, though I enjoy reading about creation science, and I enjoy going to the ark and the, and the creation museum, I love those things. I, I love to read and to learn those things. In one sense, most of it doesn't matter to me because God created a mature heaven and a mature earth. If some scientist comes out here and digs a hole in the ground and says he finds evidence that, that the world is 20 million years old, then I'm okay with that because Adam showed evidence that he was 20 years old. I think when God created the world, he created it with the appearance of age. That's that's not just an opinion. That's just not just what some preacher thinks. That's the testimony of Scripture. So I've, I heard a skeptic once say, we know that the world, the universe is billions of years old because the light that we see from some of these distant stars, from some of these distant stars, that light has taken, I don't know the numbers, some hundred million years to travel from where that star is to us. And so if, if the world were not 100 million years old, Pastor, you wouldn't be able to see the star yet. Well, maybe. Or maybe when God created the star, he also created the light beam from the star all the way to my eyeball, right? Or maybe God didn't even create the star. Maybe he just created the light. Once it gets past us, we'll see there, there is no star. I don't know. But but the Bible teaches clearly in Genesis 1 that God created a mature heaven and a mature earth. So there's no, there should be no surprise that we find evidence of, of age. Let, let, me, let me explain it from one more perspective. And maybe this is too much. But, but let's imagine, a lot of imagining today, let's imagine that we have a train track up here. I mean, not a big one, a little toy track. You know, just, just little bitty trains, toy train. And we've got it stretched all the way across the front of our church. So it goes from this wall to this wall, but really you don't even see where it, where it comes from and where it goes. You just see this little part right here in the middle, a toy train. And so we've, we put a little train on the track and it's, it's moving across the track. And so we ask uh, one of our scientists here at the church, 
uh, to, to step forward and analyze this train and the movement of this little toy train and come up with some conclusions. And so uh, the scientist would, would measure it. He would see what is the direction of the train, the vector. Wh where is it going? It's going that way. He would measure uh, how fast the train, the velocity, how, how quickly is it moving? It's moving, uh, you know, three feet a second, maybe. And then we would ask the science, scientists to use his model and answer some questions. We would say, where will that train be 10 seconds from now? Scientists would plug it in and he'd say, well, based on this velocity, based on this direction, in 10 seconds, the train will be right there. We might ask, where was the train 10 seconds ago? He'd plug it in and he'd run all the equations and he'd say 10 seconds ago, the train was right there. Now, is the scientist correct? Well, maybe, but maybe not. You see, science doesn't do a very good job of looking back or looking forward. Science looks at the present. So what if we asked another question of the scientist? We said, where was the train an hour ago? An hour ago. And the scientist would plug it in and he'd say, an hour ago, the train was at Kroger. Okay, he plugs it in backwards. And then what if I said to the scientist, well, what you don't know is that 10 minutes ago, I walked over there and I set it on the track right there. Well, he would say, well, I didn't know that. I couldn't know back that there was some outside influence that affected the train. All I can do is take the present condition of the train and run the equations backwards. But you see, listen, there's a problem with just running it backwards because it doesn't account for any outside influence. He can't account for the fact that we just, we just now set the track on the train a minute or two ago. And so science, listen, science is good. Science is right. Science is uh, uh, scientific facts. We lean on those, depend on those. We need more scientists. But science can't predict the past or the future. Science... We'll look at the condition of the world, look at the geological samples from the, from the holes that they dig and read the radio, radiation uh, from, from the carbon-14 atoms and they'll run their equations backwards and they'll say 60 million years ago such and such happened. And they would probably be right on if nobody had set the train on the track just 4,000 years ago, or 10,000 years ago. So here it is, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what do we do with that? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, let me read one verse from the New Testament. Romans 1-20, for his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what is made. We can look at our creation and we can marvel at the power, the majesty, the love and grace of God. It all fits together. Creation in Genesis 1, according to Romans 1, we know that it points to the majesty of God. Sin that starts in Genesis 3 is said in Romans 3 to be solved by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. 
It's all together. How do we respond to the creation story? We recognize that it is true that God loves us and he's powerful and nothing is impossible for him. He created man and man has sinned and been separated from God. That is the undeniable truth of Genesis 1 through 3. But we look to Romans 1 through 3 and we find out that God sent his son Jesus who died to pay the penalty for our sins. So just as death came from one man, so life will come from one man, Jesus, if we'll put our trust in him. What should we do when we study science? It ought to drive us to the cross of Christ and we ought to call out for forgiveness, surrendering our life to him so that we can know the life that comes from one man, Jesus. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Thank you, Father, that you have revealed something of yourself, not just in your word, but you've revealed something of yourself in nature, in chemistry, in physics, and biology. Father, help us not to ignore that great revelation, but help us to understand that because of that, we go all the way to Romans 3, 4, 5, and 6, and we learn that our only hope is Jesus. I pray that you, that you make us amazed at your power and longing for your forgiveness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.